Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E, M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. We've got a legend on today, Mr. Phil Demmel, who's a guitar player and songwriter, most notable for his 16-plus year stint with Machine Head as the lead guitarist. He's also been involved with multiple bands such as Violence, the collaborative effort BPMD, Torque, and uh, he even filled in for Slayer in 2018. Phil and his wife, Marta, who plays keyboards for Bleeding Through, also own a bar that they're very active with. Let's get this going. I introduce you, Phil Demmel. Well, Phil Demmel, thanks for being with us. That was a sick clap. <laughs> yeah. We're at, actually pretty in time, considering. I think I was early like most guitar players, so. <laughs> you know what's funny about the whole clap thing is... Uh, it's because of Skype delay. There's always like some amount of Skype delay. So, but sometimes we talk to people who aren't aware of that, who are, you know, they pride themselves on their timing as musicians. <laughs> so when it's off, it, uh, yeah. you, you could tell that they're like, well, what's, what's going on? I thought I was a good musician. Right. Right. Ale, <laughs> where, where are you at right now? I'm in Atlanta. You're in Atlanta. And where are you at, John? I'm in the lovely, well, normally rainy Yorkshire Dales, but yes. today it's 30 degrees and I can't have any of my windows open because of screaming kids. It's amazing. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Uh, and where, and uh, whereabouts are you? I'm in Northern California, uh, east of Oakland. Oh, uh, yes. Dublin, California. Yeah. So it's, it'll be probably, you know, mid seventies, close to 80 today. I don't know what that is Celsius. You guys can figure that out. We do everything <laughs> wrong here. <laughs> Europeans are smarter. They can figure it out. How crazy is it near you? As far as the quarantine and all that? And yeah, quarantine, protests, riots, 2020. There's been some protests, but they it's mostly, you know, the rich white people trying to do all that they can to, to make themselves <laughs> feel good, you know? Uh, <laughs> Um, so it's been pretty mellow where I'm at. I own a bar in town here. So at the outset, we didn't know, you know, Antifa saying, ah, oh, let's go get the rich white, you know, because I live in, a, in an in a upper middle class part of town. And so when they were threatening to come into our neighborhoods and start, I went down and got the plywood and boarded up my windows. And, you know, I had somebody spray paint on the, the old walking dead, you know, dead inside, do not open, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
It hasn't been bad, you know, being a bar owner and being a musician, you know, they have those nine levels of activities that are at the highest risk. And, you know, of course the top, the, the most it's dangerous both. level is yeah. Bars and live music. So <laughs> strike one and two. Have the bars reopened in California? If you serve food, you can have like outside dining, but it's been pretty strict. Like we don't, and we don't want to partner with the, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me, you know, to bring, Hey, for bringing all these other contaminants, then you can open, you know, and but <laughs> I don't get it. I'm just waiting it out. You know, it, a lot of businesses are really suffering. A lot of them are closing th- their doors and uh, we we're fortunate enough to say for a rainy day. I have a lot of resources to be able to weather this. And there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, but I don't know. Somebody in the bar industry pissed off somebody and they're like, nope, everybody. <laughs> but the, you know, like that scene in Blazing Saddles, like, all right, everybody's welcome, except for the Irish, you know. Okay, the Irish. <laughs> <laughs> what about music wise? Has uh what is lockdown done for you musically? I, I'm curious because a lot of people that we've talked to and at least me with my work, it's been more productive than ever. How's it been for you? Yeah. I've never been busier as far as I'm sitting here in my home studio and uh, I've got, uh, you know, the rig and the recording. I'm learning the pro tools, you know, and I'm, uh, I'm doing all these, I'm calling them collab jams where I'm, I'm reaching out to, I just put one up today with uh, me and Dave Lombardo and Zet from Exodus and Matt from Rancid. We covered a dead Kennedy song called police truck. And uh, I've that done stuff. sick. I've done stuff with uh, Lizzie Hale and Richie Faulkner and Mike Inez together. I'm just reaching out to all my friends in the industry to like, hey, let's do a Thin Lizzie cover. Let's do a Michael Shanker cover. Let's, uh, I covered uh, Falling Off the Edge of the World of Black Sabbath, a pretty obscure track off of Mob Rules with Dirk from Megadeth and Steve from Testament and Dino Jelosic, this rad singer from Croatia who uh, sings in Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And, you know, all these favorite songs of mine I'm able to kind of record and and get these rad musicians on and create these cool things and people are really enjoying them because it's you know this cool content that probably wouldn't happen if it wasn't for this situation and uh, so I'm honing my Pro Tools skills I'm writing a violence record so I'm getting together with the dudes and kind of learning the superior drummer you know learning how to program some drums and writing riffs and had the BPMD record come out, you know, which is a covers record with Mike Portnoy and Bobby Blitz and Mark Mengi. So you're busy. It's a, that, that's a mouthful right there, you know? So yeah, none of it's show related. When did you start adding recording to your arsenal of skills? We bought the Pro Tools rig, I think maybe four years ago for my wife and she was going to get into it and start learning how to do it. And it just kind of sat for a while because she got pregnant. We had a son and his name is Wolf. <laughs> and he is just a ball of energy, man. And he doesn't listen. And it's, he just has exhausted <laughs> us both to where it's, I'm feeling, I think I've, I have aged more in the past four years than I did the 30 years previous. <laughs> so that kind of put the Pro Tools rig on the side for a minute. And uh, so I started picking it up. I'm doing, I've done some solos for some people. I did a solo on the last uh, Brian Posehn record and, uh, Corey from God forbid and, uh, and Corey from 
Living Color did a band called The Disciples of Verity, and I did a solo on that. And so I pulled the rig out. I'm like, I need to figure this shit out, you know? And so <laughs> it got a, I, it's, we spent some money on a good interface and everything. So I'm just slowly, bit by bit, putting pieces together and uh, working with an engineer in town, just kind of spoon feeding me some information. And, you know, I'm not mixing anything now, but I can. I can track some stuff and layer some stuff up. And <laughs> if you want, I own a, an online recording school that's specifically for metal people. No way. And that's awesome. Yeah. So after this, I'll get your email and send you a login if you want. We have That'd a be amazing. super, super detailed Pro Tools course on there. That's like. That's killer. And the difference between it and like if you were to just go like anywhere and do like Pro Tools 101 is that ours is like. Spis it's metal. like made by metal metal people for metal <laughs> so it's it's like all the stuff that you would need to know in Pro Tools specifically to do what we do. That's so cool. That's it cool. might help. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I've done some things with, uh, my wife is, uh, Marta from bleeding through. So she's, you know, accomplished piano player and she's, you know, she's an amazing singer. So I've been doing stuff with her. We did, uh, Allison Chains cover, no excuses. And she's saying that and like, people are like, holy fuck, she's got an amazing voice. And, um, we did a journey tune. It's just kind of fun. Her and I just kind of messing around. And so I did a, uh, Michael Shanker group cover with Graham Bonnet, you know, it was crazy. We got Graham Bonnet to sing on it and Johnny Tempesta and Joey Vera from Armored Saint. And, uh, she sang the backups on that. So she's harmonizing with this legendary singer, Graham Bonnet. And so I think, you know, it's not only metal that I'm going to be doing because she wants to do like a Sia cover and we got some original mm -hmm. stuff that we're going to be doing. That's not necessarily metal because I'm into a bunch of different types of music and she's way into pop. And so you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. It's very exciting. What goes into putting these collaborations together? Like what, what are the logistics behind that? Because I can imagine that coordinating so many people is not the easiest. It started with one. And I've got this list, it's turned into like 10 songs that I've like, I've got like a wish list of, you know, hey, there's a song I want to do, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if I should say yet, but you know, I, there's a Maiden song I want to do. So I'll reach out to, hey, who could sing it and who would be good on drums, you know? So I've got a wish list and I put it out and nobody, there's been one person who said no, and that was Trujillo. I wanted him to play on police truck and they're busy doing Metallica <laughs> stuff, you know? So... So it's, I get it. Rob from Metallica is not going to play on my DK's cover. <laughs> I guess, I guess that's understandable. But he was into it. You know, if he had the time, he would do it. And I don't think he had the ability to record either. And, but everybody's been, you know, on board to, to do it, which is exciting, you know? And uh, so then um, you have to be able to record at home. Um, so they, we, I usually just set up a Dropbox and, uh, it depends on who's going to start the song. Usually the drummer does, but like with Police Truck, I played to a click and uh, Lombardo was all, hey, let's try it at 200. And I'm all, I recorded it at, at 210, you know, and he's all, oh, <laughs> then I'm, I'm going to pretend that Dave Lombardo is not asking me to slow down on a deck. <laughs> <You know? laughs> then it ended up him wanting it to be faster. And, but so there are different ways. I usually have the drummer's track and I did a loss of control cover with Billy Sheehan and Jeff Scott Soto, uh, Van Halen, loss of control, real kind of crazy cover. And Dave McLean from uh, Machine Head, my partner there, had uh, played drums. So he'll play it. And there's no click with that song, you know, because McLean is, he's all like, you got to pretend like you just drank like a six pack of Schlitz malt liquor or something when you're playing a Van Halen because <laughs> you just imagine them being drunk in the studio. And 
So I usually start with a drum track, uh, just do like a stereo mix. Then I'll add my tracks and I've been trying to layer a bunch of them like that falling off the edge of the world. I had some strings going. Uh, Steve DiGiorgio had a friend who played uh, violin and viola and and uh, so added strings and we put Marta on the keyboards. And if you guys haven't heard it, check it out. It's almost just like the record, man. It's so, so much fun. And then you just is that on YouTube. Yeah, they're all on my YouTube okay. channel. I've got them all up there. So, so pull them out and check them out. It's super fun to watch these, you know, super talented dudes do their thing. And it depends on the group, but somebody will have like, hey, I got a video guy who'd want to do this, or uh, I've got a guy that'll want to mix. Mike Inez had uh, Paul Figueroa who works a lot with Allison Chains. You know, he was he's oh yeah, I'll you know. Give me a, you know, a guitar or something, you know, one of your, you know, just throw me, throw me something. I'll mix this for you. Pretty, pretty renowned producer. So he mixed that one for us and the Allison Chains video guy did it, you know, all just wanting to kind of contribute, have fun in the sense. And I'm a big proponent of kind of giving back at this stage because I'm able to I see a lot of musicians that are putting up tip jars and, you know, playing acoustic songs for, and I'm kind of having a hard time with that. At, at this sense, because I think that it's kind of, I don't know, ripping off your fans in a way to where it's like, you know, and, and I get the fans will want to support. I'm just not, you know, I'm not asking fans to buy merch at this point or anything. I think that everybody's just on kind of a timeout. And yeah, this is my way of just giving content back and just going like, hey, this is fun. Enjoy this in the meantime. And, you know, it's it keeps my hands from being idle and getting my chops up. And it's I'm a pretty social dude, so it's getting me in touch and, and just the experience is good for me now. I feel like some musicians I know are being super idle during this time. And then other musicians I know are kind of taking your approach, just like going all out, making the absolute most of this, I guess with the idea that you're never really going to get another chance to just be stuck at home for this long, maybe ever again in your entire life. Probably until you're done. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't, if, if people are being idle, I'm sure that it's maybe because they were so busy for so long. It's like, man, I got this chance to be with my family now and, you know, and not do it or need to take that creative break or whatever. Most musicians I know are really clamping down or practicing. Like, this is, I'm, really been working on my guitar technique and really been practicing more than I ever have. One, because of this violence record that's coming up, it's, I want it to be as best as it can be. And so there's, and it's the first thing I've done since I left my last band, really. I mean, the BPMD record was all covers, but this is music that I'm, that I'm writing. The first thing that I'm coming with original tunes with, and I want it to be good. So it's 53 years old and have this new lease on musical life. And, uh, want to make the best of it and take advantage. So when you say you're working on guitar technique, what are you working on? Just picking technique and, and tremolo picking and speed picking and just trying to be cleaner. And, you know, I've never been the the cleanest guy, but after working on my uh, just picking technique and just trying to, to clean all that up and muting strings better and not being sloppy in that sense, you know, I had got to a point playing live to where it was, especially when we're, you know, playing the tracks and, you know, a lot of stuff is loose and you get more into, you know, pointing at the crowd and, you know, doing, <laughs> doing more stuff than actually playing guitar and you get into bad habits. And, you know, I 
will admit I became victim of that. And, um, now that I'm recording and, uh, doing stuff that's a lot of isolate isolation on my play, you know, I want to, I want to be good and want to be clean. And there's a lot of focus on that too. I think self-recording and I know John agrees with this. I think self-recording is one of the best ways to get better at guitar. Cause like you really get you, to hear the truth. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm doing one now that's, uh, it's there's a lot of cleans. I just layered six acoustic tracks, you know, of six string, a couple six string, and then I got a nylon string and I got a 12 string and I'm, you know, I'm peppering stuff in here and punching in an acoustic track, you know, it's not as easy as people think. No, it's not. <laughs> you get a lot of the pop in, you know, and, and I'm sure there's a way to avoid that. But for where I'm at, it's just like, fuck this. I just want to play this two minute stretch clean all the way through <laughs> and not punch in and, you know, have capture the vibe. And it's really taught me to do that. You know, I think the fact that for a while I didn't know how to punch or, you know, it made me a better player in the recording sense. Cause it's like, Hey, you got to play this good all the way through, you know? And so space bar command Z three, try it again. You know, Boom. <laughs> I had that move down. So ah, fuck, hit it again, do it again, <laughs> do it again. You're right. Recording myself has really honed my skill and my listening and my, you know, I want to, I want to put out a good product. I want to play it well. So it's, you know, train me in that sense. How long did it take you for, to see a big improvement in your playing when you started recording yourself properly? It depends. Like on the solos, pretty quick because machine head solos, I would pop in, I grab a note here, or, you know, I'd, I'd punch in a lot of my solos doing that just to get it, just to get it done. Instead of like doing it that way, then doing a whole playthrough. There's a lot of punching on my solos when I do that. And now with the solos, it was pretty immediate to where it's like, I want to play this all the way through. I want it to be a one pass solo. I just did the, uh, a cover for shortest straw and that Kirk Hammett solo in that one. And it's like, I want to, one past this solo, you know, and, and yep. there's a lot of parts to it and they're really kick and it's, it's a hard solo, you know, it's a hard solo. And, uh, after I was done with that one, I felt really accomplished and really, you know, Hey, you probably couldn't have done that a couple of years ago, you know? And so in the solo sense, I've noticed it pretty, but I had been working on the whole last tour I did with the previous man. I had a, I had an acoustic, I, one of my ovations that I would, I get up during the day and I would just play it all day. You know, I just walk through our merch guy and I'd go out there and he's like, yeah, you're here to serenade me while everybody's setting up. You know, I, I gave the setup, you know, the soundtrack of just, just practicing on that acoustic, you know, trying to, to fret correctly. And it, it, it makes you, you know, the acoustic would make you work on it because you hear it more, you know, like it makes acoustic. you honest. Yeah. It's just like, oh yeah, you're, you know, you're not playing that clean or whatever. So it, it just got me working in that sense. So I spent a good, that last whole tour and, you know, a year since of just working with the acoustic and trying to play cleaner and up picking, you know, I, I, I would pick everything down as I came up the strings or whatever. So I got, you know, just working on the picking hand a lot. And one of the things that really helped my guitar playing go from one level to a level higher, because I never think I was that great. But like one thing that really helped me get a lot better was when I decided to start either practicing everything on an acoustic or with super low gain. I mean, like yeah. just like slight bit of overdrive because it just keeps you honest because, you know, you add gain and you add delay and all that stuff and cheating. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds cool. And so you can get kind of, you can get carried away by how cool 
that sounds and just flub stuff. Right. I actually think the biggest cheat is actually a noise gate. Yeah, right. Yeah, which, you know, like uh, the moment you turn that off with your normal sound, it's just a wall of mess. Yes. So I think that actually doing what Al said he did as well, but also playing on gain tones without a noise gate, I find that that really helps me as well because it means that I have to spend a lot more time learning to recontrol my guitar with uh, my trying to mute things with my left and right hands muting and where to and and how to and sometimes you you mute with your left hand you know on the higher strings and sometimes you mute with your palm and um Randy Rhodes had there's not a lot of his instruction that is carried through but that's what one of his things was you know practice on your clean tone you know no gain and that's that's where you'll see the most imp- improvement because you have to you have to pick harder you have to fret harder you have to you know that's where the true sound of the guitar is. And that will be consistent with anything. You know, it, it won't be like, oh, hey, with this guitar, I'm not used to, you know, or this setup, I don't have as much gain. So you you have to, you know, adjust. But if you're playing and if you're used to playing at that at that skeleton of a tone and, you know, the bare <laughs> bones of, of playing, then that's consistent with wherever you go. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys brought up something interesting that I've noticed uh, about noise with a guitar. And I think that, you know, there's a new generation of guitar players who have come up basically in bedrooms, recording themselves, not exactly practicing with their bands, like the way that I was brought up. And I'm sure you were brought up like that's kind of happening less and less and less. And uh, my touring career ended in like 2010. But one of the things that was the most striking to me about playing guitar live is that basically it's like controlling a beast. Like, because if you don't control it, it's going to make so much fucking noise. Like that, that's a whole side of guitar playing that if you're just in the bedroom, I don't think that you can quite simulate what it's like to be that loud with that much ability to make that much noise. And uh, I think that that helps people get cleaner if they're paying attention to it. For sure. Simulating what it's going to be like on stage or, you know, unless you're going direct or whatever, but, you know, but there's all so many other tangibles. There's all these other things. Oh, hey, the drummer and, you know, all this wall of sound coming over here and I can't hear myself. So I'm turning up over here, but you got to stand in front of your (laughs) amp. You know, there's all these little other things that come into play. And I'm so old school in the sense that I, hate writing long distance and sharing riffs that way. I want to be in the room, you know, looking at my drummer and vibing with him or like head nod, okay, on three or, you know, and just whatever, vibing with each other in that sense. And that's what music is about to me. It's about capturing those moments, isn't it? Those inspirational moments, which is definitely missing from a lot of modern music. I would definitely agree with that. It is. It is. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's sterile because... There's a lot of... Oh, no, there's some great stuff coming out, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm so amazed by the level of playing and how quick people pick up... crazy, isn't it? like, I've been playing since 1981, so 39 years or whatever, or uh, it's probably more than that. (laughs) (laughs) And then you look at these kids have been playing for two years, like I had a... uh, a nephew that was just like picked it up and oh I'm learning the you know the Randy Rhodes tribute record and he's playing these road solos like you the fucker man you know, show me <laughs> almost show me that you know and, and it's really amazing that you know the technology helps obviously because you know they're 
who's to say that if they were back where I was with my tape recorder hitting rewind and then play and trying to play along with a Dave Murray, you know, something or other, or uh, Adrian Smith trying to figure out an Adrian Smith lead or something that it's, it's a lot different on a set. It's very different. Okay. So I'm a little bit younger than you, but I came up in an era where that's, that's how I started doing it was with a Walkman right. trying to play along or like I'd record something with a Walkman and then rewind and then try to come up with a harmony to that. And that's the only way I could do it. And then eventually recording, digital recording came along and that helped a ton. But one of the reasons that I think that uh, this younger generation gets so good so fast is part because the recording thing is just, it's something that I think you and I had to adopt. Yeah. They're just born into this style of doing it. Plus they've got YouTube so they can go and watch all the greatest guitar players on earth and like dissect them. Whereas I think in just a one or two generations earlier, it was a lot more of like a scavenger hunt to figure out how how to do it. Even yeah. if you had a guitar teacher, like you could have a guitar teacher, but it's not like you could watch, you can, you know, watch Zach Wilde do it, then watch Marty Friedman do it, then watch Jason Richardson do it. Then like, you know, right. all these dudes and, and just learn from them. I think YouTube is the, uh, the reason. Yeah. We barely had any videos of Judas Priest or I remember, you know, oh, hey, there's a picture of, you know, in Hit Parade or even in the magazines, they didn't cover much metal or the music that we were playing, you know, so it's, you would have to go, I remember going to see Iron Maiden, Denver the Beast tour, because there was a part in 22 Acacia Avenue, there was a chord that we couldn't figure out. Well, what is that chord? It sounds like, a, you know, so we had to go and physically watch him oh, that's what he's doing there, you know? So we had to go to the show <laughs> to watch and learn this song. And, you know, the immediate, you know, that's that's our, the time, the sign of the times is that immediate gratification, just that instant, oh, hey, uh, I want to learn Mr. Crowley solo. Mr. Crowley's lesson, blang, go. All right, you know, and... It's, it does make it so much easier. And I'm, you know, I've got, I've got the tab apps on my phone and, you know, and I'm, I'm right there <laughs> learning them too. I think it's, I think it's great. I'm sure you've noticed too, that drummers are playing at speeds that were previously unimaginable. Right. What I heard about that was the first time I ever saw one of these new school drummers that was just like ridiculous, like faster than I could ever imagine I asked him what, how he learned and what it, what it ended up being was he would hear these records that were edited and, you know, had samples on the drums and everything. Mm -hmm. And, but he didn't know that they were edited or that, you know, there were sampled kicks or drawn in or anything like that. He thought that's how yeah, he thought drummers it was real actually and possible. And yeah. So, so that, so he learned how to play <laughs> like that because that, because he just thought, and so I think there's a generation of kids who didn't realize that some of this stuff is massaged in the studio. So they just tried to reach that standard. Yeah. Are you talking about Mike? Mike? Which Mike? My Mike. No. Because that's exactly what happened to him. That's what oh, I'm saying. Right. It's a whole generation, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ayo, who did you who did you play with back in the day? I played with a band called Doth that probably never heard of. Hmm. No, you're right. Like I said. Sorry. They were on Roadrunner. No, I don't care. <laughs> we, we were on uh, Roadrunner for about two years. Really? And then Century Media. Yeah. yeah. Around the time that the Blackening came out. Well, okay, so seven? 
Yeah, and signed by Monty, too. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, D-A-A-T-H. Yes. Yeah, with, uh, didn't Tally play on that band? Correct. Yeah, so I've heard of you guys. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> there we <laughs> go. Yeah. Doth. Tally is a motherfucker on drums. Yeah. Yeah, he's just a motherfucker in general. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. I was saying also I motherfucker. I don't. I don't mind saying that and keeping that in there. Kevin Talley, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, he 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 wouldn't mind. Yeah, he knows it. <laughs> yeah, he he uh, he might be one of the most uh, pol. I don't know if the word's polarizing. That's the w- exact just- adjective that popped into my mind when you started that sentence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, there's a lot, you know, he's an amazing drummer, an amazing drummer. A lot comes with that, though. A lot comes with that. <laughs> I remember we were playing, we were playing Wiffle Ball or something on a Mayhem <laughs> tour, and uh, he wanted to play or something, and we were making up the rules for it, whatever. I'm all, uh, Kevin Talley wears a muzzle, and he can play. <laughs> Man, we should have done that. <laughs> Get a muzzle for that kid, and yeah, absolutely, he can hang out. You know, I think that uh, people that are super brilliant, sometimes there's like, uh, there's a trade-off, you know? So, you know, he was like 17 when he joined Dying Fetus and he was like 19 when he did that Slayer audition where he got the role, he got it. Uh, It's just that Dave Lombardo came back. So like, yeah, like at 19 years, and you can look up on YouTube, you can look up Kevin Talley Slayer audition, and he's there in the room with them, like playing war ensemble and all that stuff, and he's fucking killing right. it. He was this close to being in Slayer wow. before 20 years old, and yeah, obviously Dave Lombardo came back, and then that was that, but I think to be that good, that young, you're not going to be a normal person. Right, it's the whole <laughs> ch- child star thing, you know? <laughs> yeah child actor thing too much there's a, there's another good example of this as well actually the uh the drummer of carcass right now he's very young when he joined he joined what like six seven years ago i want to say english fella plays faster than anyone you'll ever see can't remember his name right now but yeah he joined them we just did a couple of shows with them oh really carcass and yeah yeah it was an amazing drummer yeah 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 he's phenomenal yeah i think he's only about 32 right now i remember 32 <laughs> yeah i remember 32 as well yeah all right so speaking of the old days when you're first learning to play guitar considering that didn't have the tools that we have now how did you go about it i took lessons for a little bit in the beginning but i was mostly just learning how to play hallowed be thy name and you know (laughs) priest tunes and my teacher was like I'm not teaching you anything. You'd probably be better off not taking lessons. You know, all you want to do, go. you can learn these cover songs on your own. Actually, my guitar teacher, he goes by Ryan Roxy now, and he's actually the guitar player for Alice Cooper. Oh, all right. He did all right then? Yeah, yeah. And he was an amazing player. So basically self-taught. So wait a second. The dude that plays for Alice Cooper couldn't teach you metal songs? <laughs> he was, he was, I was such a Randy Rhodes kid and he, he was in a band called Fair Warning. And so he loved, he loved Eddie Van Halen. And I, you know, my high school girlfriend liked Eddie Van Halen. So I was like, fuck that dude. So you, know? you didn't. <laughs> oh, fucking Randy Rhodes, you know? So I, I had a later appreciation for Eddie Van Halen after I got over my teenage, you know, angst and jealousy thing. <laughs> but yeah, he, he taught me some, I probably learned the most from him. He taught me a little bit of theory, a little bit of hammer on. He taught me eruption. And I don't know if you remember the band Vandenberg 
from uh, the oh, early yeah. 80s, Adrian Vandenberg's band. So he taught me. Yeah, he had that signature PV, didn't he? Yes. Uh, PV guitar. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah, yeah. It's super awesome, you know, and talk about a guy who plays clean, that first Vandenberg record, the, the, the notes, I don't, I don't really like the guitar tone, but he played so clean and his melodies and he incorporated the shred in with the melodies. And that's those are the players that I really like. How did it go from just learning some songs that you like into, wow, this is something I actually want to do for real. It was pretty quick. I think I was 15 when I started writing music and lyrics at the house. I actually live in the same house that I grew up in. I bought my parents' house and uh, we made our garage. My dad made our garage oh, that's cool. into a jam space, you know? So we had, we had a spot, you know? And so I'd sit out there and everything, you know, I love Maiden so much and Hallowed Be Thy Name was my favorite song, still is. And so most of my early songs were all about somebody getting hanged and waiting to go to the gallows, you know? So <laughs> Good topics. I had some dudes that I jammed with and we started, you know, playing my originals and along with some covers and uh, Zetro from Exodus. His brother was my bass player. They were older, three or four years older than me. But we talked Zet into singing for us. We were called On Parole <laughs> uh, after the after the Motorhead record, you know. And and so we talked him into singing and he sang kind of like uh, Jeff Tate, you know, the Queen of the Rock, you know, all falsetto and stuff. And so uh, I, I, I knew, you know, I knew that I wanted to perform at an early age. And once I figured out the guitar was going to be it, I wanted to write music, you know, and I felt that I could. I had a good ear for figuring some things out and putting some notes together. My mom was in the choir. She sang in folk groups when I was growing up. We always had a piano in the house. and So it was wired in to the DNA. Yeah. And she was, she's an alto. So she, she's got a lower voice and, and she still does it. It's amazing how she still, uh, picks out low harmonies because the low harmonies are the hard ones to figure out. It's, it's easier to go higher. Here's a third, here's a fifth or whatever. But figuring out the low, lower register harmonies is something that she always just does with commercials or, you know, singing happy birthday or whatever, you know? So I think a lot of that kind of rubbed off as well. You know what's interesting about what you just said? One of the most, uh, I guess, brilliant music teachers I ever had, the way he put that was higher notes and higher frequencies give you more information that the brain can perceive. It's just easier for us to perceive. And uh -huh. the lower it goes, the harder it is to differentiate. And that's oh, wow. that's actually why in, in mixing, low end is so tough because it's it's physically harder for us to actually make that out. So, oh wow! And the same goes for hearing harmonies and things like that. It's just, it's just harder. For awesome. Us. Learning yes. with Al. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what it's all about. <laughs> Did you have your sights set on being in a big band and doing it like that, like for real, for real? Yeah, I mean, I always the fourth grade. My first time on stage was in fourth grade. They had talent shows at the elementary schools, you know, and there was a song out. You're probably too young to remember this, but there's a song by C.W. McCall called Convoy. And it's about this trucker on a CB, you know, this here's a rubber duck and I'm about to go hunting. You know, I used all the because we got a big go convoy. And I sat behind a cardboard truck that my dad had made and I had the CB and I was just I did this song on stage and I just knew I just wanted to perform. The next year we did Kiss, you know, the year after that we did Foreigner, Hot Blood. You know, so going into seventh grade is when I actually uh, 
sixth grade, I got the guitar. Seventh grade, I learned how to play it. So that's, you know, I knew I wanted to be on stage. I was watching all these bands and I couldn't go to concerts until I was in high school. So, you know, I had to hear from all my friends going to see all these rad local shows. And 1981, I was able to go to my first concert and it was called Day in the Green. There were these Bill Graham, big promoter, put on these uh, festivals at the Coliseum here. And uh, the first one was Hart was headlining, Bloister Colt, Pat Travers, Loverboy, and the second from the opening band was Ozzy Osbourne, Blizzard of Oz tour. So I got to see Randy Rhodes, my first concert, 4th of July, 1981, at 10 in the morning. Damn. 10 in the morning they went on. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I Just watching him, watching Rhodes just own the stage and play with such passion and just such ferocity, you know, and a huge driving force to go. In fact, that's what I want to do, man. And uh, talking with, I've got to do some uh, some Randy Rhodes remembered shows and tribute stuff with Ray, uh, Rudy Sarzo, and you know, talking to him about that show and talking to him about Randy is super inspiring because Rudy is he's kept like a journal on. If you read his book Off the Rails, you know, you re it reads like a journal. Like, oh, hey, February twenty fifth, we stayed at a Holiday Inn, and this was the name of the club, and we played this that night, and we went to eat here. Well, that's and cool. It's like, holy crap, Rudy! It's so amazing that you were. You know, and he loves to talk about them and share the stories. And so uh, I actually got, I'll let you guys know that I'm doing a uh, an Aussie cover, one of my favorite songs, uh, Revelation Mother Earth. I'm doing that right now. I tracked the acoustics. That's what the acoustics were for yesterday. And I got Rudy to play on it. So, so it's uh, me, and Port, nice. me and Portnoy and Rudy and that guy Dino singing on it too. So I'm really excited. That's going to be sick. I'm really excited yeah. about that one. And it's got to be perfect. You know, it's it's the tune. <laughs> so, you know, right on, Rudy. God bless you, Rudy Sarzo. <laughs> Dude, Randy <laughs> Rhodes is, uh, I think he was the first lead guitar player that I ever started to worship. He was just... <laughs> Yeah, at like 13 or something. That that dude was something else for sure. So how long did it take from like when you're like, all right, I'm going to do this till you were in a situation where momentum started building? Because if you were seventh grade, that must be like 12 years old, right? Yeah. So it was, it was when I was in high school, when I met Zet and I, I, my freshman year, like around 81, when I started playing with other people, my buddy Danny had a kit, my buddy Donnie, we would go over and we'd play, we'd play, you know, Def or the first Def Leppard record, you know, we play Wasted and we'd, you know, we'd play Priest tunes, we'd play Maiden songs and so that's getting momentum into original stuff. And now we're, you know, getting gigs and we're playing because we, you know, Zet and they knew some some local guys that were playing at some of the local clubs. Then I see Slayer for the first time, you know, in 1984. And and it's like, holy crap, what is this music? You know, I were, were they like a local band at that point? They were L.A. This is their first. Their, oh, yeah, that's right. Their, they were L.A. Their record had come out, but it was their first time playing the Bay Area. And they opened up for some local a band that I really like called Laws Rocket. And when they came out, man, I was, you know, I'm not a big uh, pot smoker, but, you know, I had, for whatever reason, me and my buddy and our girlfriends, I my parents had a van, you know, so we're in the van smoking hash in the van before we go into the show. And I'm super stoned and super paranoid, you know, and <laughs> the lights go out and you had to walk in front through the crowd to get to the stage at this club called the Keystone Berkeley. And, uh, 
so the the theme from Halloween goes on, and you see these figures walking past me. I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know, and they get up and they bust in, and the evil has no boundaries, and it's super fast. And I'm like, going, it literally blew my mind. I'm like, I've never heard anything this fast before. Are they really playing this fast? You know, and so went out and bought the record the next day, and it's like, fuck, I want to be in a thrash band. You know, I want to I want to play this type of music. And coming from the town where, you know, Kill 'em All was out and, you know, I'm seeing Metallica and digging that a lot. Uh, hadn't seen Exodus yet. I saw, actually saw Slayer before I saw Exodus. But Slayer was the band, man. It was just, I found some some local dudes and they played heavy and, you know, started writing music for that. And my senior year in high school, we started getting club shows opening for Legacy, who was Testament you know, became Testament because Zet sang in Legacy and violence just, you know, college? Well, I'm going to the school, of, you know, <laughs> I'm going to school of metal, you know, and <laughs> and it just blew up, you know, within a couple of years we were signed and now I'm just meeting all these people and I'm a pretty social dude and, you know, getting to know a bunch of people in the industry and it's just blossomed into this crazy, amazing, super dream of a lifetime for me, you know? So it's, I've got a lot to be grateful for and I really am. Do you think that that social aspect is kind of crucial to making it happen? I do. Yeah. Some of the best musicians or best bands in the world, if you don't know somebody, then you're not, it's not going to happen. You know, you don't, it's not one of those things where you're rewarded for your ability or how good you are. It's who you know. And what they think of you. Very fortunate to, yeah. And, it be, you know, I think at, at my very core, being genuine and being honest is the most important. You know, that's me and my family are all about honesty and being genuine. So, you know, I'd rather take my lumps and, you know, hey, I fucked up or, you know, just knowing knowing my role or just knowing my, my place. And I think that's important, too, is is just knowing exactly what you are. Uh, but it's, it's being honest, man. And I think that, that people want that more than anything. They want to be able to look at you and believe what you're saying and having that trust. And, you know, especially now the world's gone insane, you know, (laughs) nobody trusts anybody. So I I think that that has been one of my, uh, and it's by fault, you know, because I certainly wasn't when I was a kid. I started growing up a teenager and everybody learns as you go, but I was, I was dishonest. I'd lie about how many guitars I had, how many shows I went to, about, you know, the girl I was dating. And there's girls at school <laughs> that they go, yeah, that guy says that we're going steady. You know, I don't even know, you know, and it's, and I found that, you know, I'd steal, I would steal cars. I would steal anything that wasn't nailed down, you know, and, and, I, and you learn as you get older, as I got into construction, people stealing my tools and it's like, Hey, that sucks. You know, it's like, that's, <laughs> that's what it feels like. That's what it's like. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of sucks. So I got to ask what goes into stealing a car? <laughs> so we're, <laughs> Sorry, you said it. I got to we, know. We were talking about this last night. Cause there's been some break-ins in, uh, I do like a taco Tuesday with our friends and it was my son's birthday. And so we did this get together and one of the neighbors had their car busted into. So I'm all, was it unlocked? And they're all, yeah, I'm all, okay. You know, I said, I've got to be, they got to be honest. I've went, 
been guilty as being a, a, t- a preteen, a teenager, walking through our neighborhoods and just looking for cars that, that weren't locked and going in and pillaging and taking cassettes or whatever. But sometimes, you know, there was a time in the mid-80s in Dublin where people just left their keys in their car. And, you know, you go, oh, there's there's a Nova with a, the keys in the car. and Freebie. Yeah. <laughs> I was doing that at 13. I, 15 years old, I found we found an El Camino. And uh, I was driving it to school, you know, underage. I was about to ask where the hell you took the car. <laughs> school. Yeah, all right. Driving it to school. Lunchtime, all the kids would be El Camino. John, I don't know if you know, if you're familiar with one, but it has a bed in the back. It's like a pickup, but it's a car. And so we had 12 kids in the back and we're driving to the pizza joint or whatever. <laughs> but we found the guy's registration and he lived close to the school. So we would drive by his house in his car, in the stolen car, <laughs> and open his garage door with the garage door open. <laughs> so, yeah, as you, you know, my dad found out and he he's an ex-cop. And so he called the cops from called the cops from a from a, a pay phone going, yeah, my son's been driving this car here. It's parked over at blah, blah, blah. You know, so they couldn't trace the call. And I bet your dad wasn't pleased. No, he wasn't. But he he got it, you know. I love my, my father passed away 13 years ago, but you know, I, he was an amazing dude, did anything for his family, but I know he wasn't the most honest guy either. (laughs) So, you know, he, he, he loved his family and kept his, our best interests, but you know, I, I know you pop. I know. (laughs) I mean, dude, when I think back to being that age and the amount of just dangerous, stupid shit that I did. You know, it makes me think to now how glad I am that Uber exists, for instance, (laughs) because if I had a 16-year-old, I would not let them drive. I would just give them an Uber pass. Like, I'd buy them unlimited Uber because the amount of shit that could have killed me that I did with cars, I can't believe it. Yeah, I'm with you. I was... Super dangerous. I had, uh, we just watched that Ford versus Ferrari movie the other night. And uh, yeah, it's pretty good. So I had a, a Shelby Dodge Charger. I don't, it was an 87. So it's this, remember a Dodge Daytona? Do you remember those at all? No. So kind of a, t- a small sports car, but with the, with the spoilers and turbo and God, I, we would call it thread the needle on the freeway, you know, two cars <laughs> in lanes next to each other. But far enough apart where I could thread the needle and go right between them, you know. Jesus and Christ! The, and we we had this means that my buddy we had this thing called you know just just go go where there's asphalt, not where there's lines. You know, if there's if there's road, just go where there's road. So we ride on the shoulders, and you know we're stupid, lucky to be alive. Yeah, I had this thing about trying to take the car airborne. Oh. Right. <laughs> Yeah, like how far airborne could I take this uh, thing? I and uh didn't end well. You got me there, yeah. <laughs> I just know that I you just know that front end is so heavy from the engine that you're always gonna nose that. That's not gonna end well at all. No, that actually the one time I did it, it was like coming down a hill where there's a bump and another hill, and I caught major air, but then I felt like the back of the car starting to like lean, and I was like, wow. This could be bad, but it didn't stop me. <laughs> right. Three weeks later, I was at another place. This is like when I was 17 or 16, and I got air. I know I must have gotten it three or four feet off the ground, but the moment it hit, all the lights went on, and it was dead, and it was like two in the morning. 
So somehow I had to call my mom to come pick me up. It That's was not awesome. Cool. That's awesome. So did you, when you, so when you're the back end's coming up, right. Did you do that thing where you, you kind of lean back to maybe try to help it? Like, yeah, I can make it go down by, <laughs> you know, doing a, like the people that drive around with their, uh, yeah, they basically. got a mattress, they got a mattress on the top and they're, you know, they're going to hold it down with their hand, you know, the <laughs> Superman, the Superman move. Basically. So this is actually the main reason that I didn't learn to drive when I was young. Yes. (laughs) So I took all my lessons and then it came to taking my test and I was like, nah, it's a really bad idea. So I didn't, I I didn't actually take my, I didn't start driving again until four or five years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just because I knew that I was going to be stupid and potentially kill myself. And I guess you guys just threaded the needle, so to speak. (laughs) So I use that same logic when getting tattoos. I didn't get any tattoos until I was like late thirties. What changed? That saved me from getting a lot of bad tattoos. I just, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. I don't know why it did, but it did. Maybe I was brought up in a predominantly Christian home and maybe the, you know, cared what my parents thought about me for the most part, as much as they knew, you know, I couldn't hide it. I couldn't hide a tattoo. I could hide all the other shit I did. Fair enough. So at what point, like what went into getting signed the first time? You know, the Bay Area was such a hotbed for, uh, for labels. We're just looking because Metallica had Exodus and Testament and Death Angel. And, you know, all these bands were happening. The scene was thriving. It was such an amazing, you could go to a show five nights a week to see any local band, but you kind of just went because there was that many people into the music and into hanging out. So it's, it was really supportive in that sense. And there's a lot of talented people in a lot of bands, you know, the Larry and, and Les from Primus were in a band called Blind Illusion that had a awesome singer, Mark Biederman, these shreddy guitar players. Oh, they're from there too. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Damn. So, so it's, yeah. you know, it was this amazing, scene you know it was a it was a cool punk rock scene too dead kennedys and all these bands in that sense and the world was watching the bay area and they wanted to get that next band you know and and we our name came up you know to where okay they're the next one so we were able to put out a good record and make a name for ourselves and never really caught on overseas i feel that that we were and we are um since i'm back playing with them now you know, just, it was our live show. You know, we would, even playing field, we would, we weren't afraid of anybody. You know, we would play with anybody and uh, just super energetic and the, connecting with the crowd. And um, I feel that that's still the same way where there's no frills with this band. There's no dynamics where, you know, we play thrash, half stacks, jeans and t-shirts and just, you know, wind us up and no barricade. Everybody's allowed on stage and, <laughs> you know, let's go. Were you basically trying to get signed or were you basically just trying to kick fucking ass and then got approached? Well, yeah, we wanted to, we wanted to get signed and we had an independent interested in us kind of early and we, we waited it out. We wanted to, to see, cause the majors were starting to sniff around the thrash bands at this time. And, uh, we, there was a couple interested, there was a bidding war going on. And so, yeah, they approached us, but we were also like, we were down to fuck, you know, <laughs> we, were, we were good to go. So it wasn't, you know, didn't take a lot of convincing. I always find it interesting when bands aren't. My reason for saying that is because I feel like there's no way if you're a small band 
uh, to get like one of those like super ideal record deals. Like that happens once you're bigger, you know, and you can renegotiate. If you're a baby band, you're going to get like a, it's just degrees of shitty. You get the rookie contract, you know, that's just what you get. That's exactly what it is. So when I, when I hear of musicians who want to do this for real, who turn those deals down, it's like, I get it, but you're not, I feel like not thinking long-term here. There, there's no I guarantee you Slipknot got a rookie deal too. Like, yeah, yeah, of course they did. Like everyone gets a rookie deal. And it depends. I mean, you have certain leverage depending on what the interest is, but for the most part, you're going to have to prove yourself. And, uh, you know, holding out for a management position isn't, you know, (laughs) probably not ideal if that's what you, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you got to prove yourself. So what went into proving yourself? Going out and touring, you know, that band, that band, um, there's a lot of egos and a lot of just shitty behavior as far as human beings go. <laughs> so we were, we were just, we couldn't get along and we just thought that, you know, we deserved more than we did. We were looking at what other bands were doing who had already pr- proven themselves and we wanted the tour bus and we wanted blah, blah, blah. And we want this. And, and we fired a manager who was the sweetheart, this, 65 year old lady who's the sweetheart of the industry. We fired her because, you know, for whatever reason. And that kind of spelled the end of that band. Nobody wanted to work with a bunch of spoiled kids. And, you know, so that just kind of ended. And I got married and kind of quit music for a little bit. And I put out a record of me singing. It was called Torque. And that was fun to do. We were kind of local, did well locally. Um, never did anything other than that. Focused on my marriage and snowboarding and, playing pickup basketball and playing golf and had fun doing that for a bit. Did you think it was over basically? Like I was, I didn't want to be the, here's my demo guy. And I was content in my, in my life. I'd bought a house with my wife and joined the carpenters union. So I had an awesome job with benefits and I was just kind of burnt out on, on that point. And the local scene wasn't that happening and took a, a couple of years off. What time period was this? This was late. This is like 97. 97 to 99. Okay, so this was long after the Bay Area thing had peaked. Yep. So violence kind of hung on way longer. We beat that dead horse into the ground. People kind of quit. Once a singer quit, then we just changed our name. I started singing. In 99, my cousin worked for an internet startup called Exodus Communications, and he had a buddy there who had the Pro Tools rig. He had all the, the latest technology, and, you know, and he was doing samples, and he was taking violence records and sampling them and writing music over them. And so I got together with him and wrote him some riffs, and he started sampling things and looping things together, and we started writing original stuff. Uh, we brought in a drummer, and he got on the D-drum kit. You know, we had the electronic kit, so we had all this cut. This is 1999, you know, so it's pretty cutting edge at that time. And we brought in a guy to run uh, some keys and I forget that, that track pad or what was the pad called? Is Chaos pad was yeah, it? Yeah, the chaos pad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we were, had all this, you know, and, and we were, we were, you know, we love Fear Factory. Obsolete was out at that time and we loved that style of music, but our singer kind of sounded like Maynard. So we had this good blend of Fear Factory meets Tool. Uh, great songs. We started playing live and it picked up, put a record out. And then 2001 comes and the thrash of the Titans happen, 
which is Chuck from Testament got cancer and Chuck from death also had cancer. Yeah. So, so this, this le- legendary festival gets put together, benefit gets put together and all these Bay Area bands get back together. You know, Death Angel's back together, Forbidden's back together, you know, uh, Anthrax is going to come over and play. Um, SOD plays. Uh, so they asked Violence to get back together and it had been, you know, seven years at that point and we get, you know, everybody to get back together and we wipe the floor with everybody. Everybody's going nuts, man. So we do a couple of reunion shows. It's fun, you know, and people are digging violence again. And then Machine Head lose their guitar player. They have some festival dates lined up where they need somebody. And I've been talking with Adam a little bit and I say, well, hey, I'll come over and, you know, I'll come over and fill in for you guys. I'll wheel my stuff over. And he kind of jokingly says, yeah, okay. And it was a like kidding, not kidding or, you know, and it kind of, let's just see, let's just see if they, (laughs) let's just see what happens if I ask kind of thing. Yeah. So I hadn't toured since I had been married and that was in like 95. We had, we'd been together since 91, but I hadn't gone on tour since I'd been with that, you know, my previous wife. And so me leaving for two weeks was a big deal. And I'd be missing an anniversary. I'd be missing a birthday, you know, so it was a big Ah, deal. Yes. And so it's agreed to at first. And then, you know, after they buy the tickets and I'm going, you know, it's just like, I don't want you to go now or whatever. And it's just like, I fucking got to go now. I can't back out, you know? (laughs) So that, you know, it, it pretty much ended the marriage. And, uh, so I said, you know, Hey, do you guys still looking for a guitar player? And we hit it off great. You know, is it, the two weeks was awesome. The the chemistry was great. Uh, we had a blast, and uh, they were writing through the ashes at this point. And uh, so that's when I joined Machine Head. Man, it sounds like you were pretty content, kind of leaving that whole life behind. Was it this kind of like a surprise, like an, an unexpected thing that suddenly you're back in? this world and not just back in it, but doing it on a level that you didn't do it before. Absolutely. It was such a spark and such a, it kind of lit that fire, you know, cause I was, I had been, you know, of course I wanted to succeed in music, but I had been, okay. It ain't going to happen. Uh, I had tried out for Sepultura when they were looking before they got, um, Derek on vocals. Yeah. And guitar. Interesting. And, uh, so they had, and I think they already had Derek at the time, but, uh, I had a buddy who was like, Hey, you know, here's what they're doing was they sent out that song choke that, which was on, uh, his first record or whatever. And they're all write some lyrics, sing over it, see whatever you come up with. So I went and did that. And, uh, you know, it didn't happen. They already had Derek and plus they thought I was a little too old school anyways. And, but it was, it was fun to do, but it kind of told me like, Maybe this is, it's just time. It's just not happening for whatever reason. And cool so, while it lasted. Yeah. And it was, you know, I'd, not a lot of people got, we did a couple of tours in violence. I got some records out and I had some cool experiences. And yeah, I mean, that that's, that's more than like 99.9% of bands or musicians ever get to do in the first place. Absolutely. Uh, there's no way I was going to be, you know, not disappointed, but 
you know, I had to be okay with what it bitter, not really bitter either, because, you know, the thrash thing, it just, I just, I watched that wave just go away and it's just like, Hey, people don't dig the music anymore. And you know, they kind of dug what you did after it was more, you know, groove and it was more Pantera and prong and, but you know, it's time to just, you've got a great job. You've got this home life and you know, it's, it's, it's time to do that. I thought, you know, just, I'll just be a good husband and this is what, you know, and, and then the, the machine head thing happened. It's just like, holy crap, you know, and you're good at this. And, you know, this is something that you can do. And that just, you just break out of the bubble and just, you look at everything else and you go, Hey, fuck this man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I'm, I'm doing this. If this, if this, you know, so it, it was just a big eye opener and, and the whole experience, you know, 16 years with that band. I don't want, the 2% to ruin the 98% of what it was. And, you know, once it got to be where it wasn't, you know, where I needed to be or felt healthy for me, cause it was unhealthy for me. Then I just got out and it was an amazing run, did some, so many cool things. And, you know, there's no way I'm going to complain about that. I had, I gave myself a year, you know, after I quit and I, you know, cause I couldn't do press for a while. And it was just like, I had, I had a, a bunch of stuff to say, you know, cause I had, you know, had a muzzle that I couldn't. And so after that year was up, it's just like, it's time to stop, you know, stop whining about that 2% and let's just be, let's just glorify the, the 98% because we did some awesome stuff together. That's awesome. Well, it's in- interesting too, that a year can really cool down some feelings too. Yeah. Give you perspective. Well, yeah. I mean, that's just to the point. I still have, (laughs) I still still have issues. Uh, Of course. (laughs) But, you know, and working through those, it it is going to take some time, but there's so many other things that have happened since. I mean, the day after I quit, the day after I, I quit in September, then we had to do, we did a tour together because Dave quit too. And so we honored the tour. And after that last show, you know, I'm not home 12 hours. And then I'm getting a call from, I'm getting a text from Carrie King to, hey, can you learn 19 songs and be out here in two days and fill in for, <laughs> for Gary for Slayer? So it's like, I didn't have any time to mourn or grieve or anything. It was like last show on Saturday, Sunday, get the text. Monday, go pick up all my machine head gear. Tuesday on a flight to Germany, you know, to join Slayer on tour. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty sick, isn't it? <laughs> oh. So I'm on the plane, you know, the whole time, just listening to tunes and structuring shit out. Okay. And cause their timing is so weird and their notes are so weird, you know, and, and I had this, you know, did you have to learn solos? Yeah. I, you know, I didn't have to learn the solos note for note. I tried to keep them pretty true to what Jeff was doing though. But I mean, do you play guitar? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Jeff Hanneman solo is almost impossible to yeah. figure out. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, yeah. That's just basically Slayer solos in general are like, uh, <laughs> they're like in their own language basically. Yeah, they are. They are. Yeah. And even their songs are, you know, I don't think that they're written in, they're not written in any scales. They're written in shapes and that's the best way I figured out. Oh, okay. I think I get where they're going with, you know, with patterns and shapes and stuff like that. And, uh, it's actually really, it's really cool. It's like a different language. You're like, Oh, I think I speak a little Slayer ease now or <laughs> pretty cool. You know, one thing that I noticed, I was actually talking to John about this before, like about Slayer's style was I thought that it was random, but then <laughs> my band opened for them for like four shows straight once. And I watched Carrie 
sound check every day and play through everything. And uh, I was like, he's playing this the same every single time. Like, so it's not random. No, it's, it's, that's the way the song is. It's not random. I think the Jeff solos were, could be different. I think that uh, shit Lombardo's roles are different every night, you know, Lombardo plays shit different all the time. But, you know, I think, I think Slayer, I think that Carrie's super consistent with what he, what he does. And like his solos are the same. Man. And he's got some tone in his, that's the other thing I was telling Sean is when I watched him sound check. So basically he sound checked by himself for like an hour every day. Oh, wow. And then the band came on and played a song for five minutes and then they were done. But he was up for an hour and he basically played the whole set. And it was like, wow. So that Slayer guitar tone is his hands. Yes, like for that, sure. That rhythm tone that's so specifically them. It was really, really impressive. Like I always was a fan, but I gained a respect that, I never had before because it just like I was hearing this classic. I mean, you know it, like that South of Heaven yes, tone or whatever. For sure, just like right there, he's just doing it. That's what he sounds like. Yeah, and you know, back in the day, especially in the in the 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 eighties when everybody was a phenomenal guitar player, you know, all the hair metal bands and and Flair caught a lot of flack for their solos and ah, they're not really good guitar players and. Dude, you try playing those songs and they're insane. They're insane, you know, and it's and it's not all right hand stuff, too, because Perry's got an incredible right hand. But a lot of, you know, the, you know, there's there's a lot of weird gymnastics that you got to go through and using the right <laughs> finger in the right spot. You know, there's a lot going on. What goes into technically learning 19 songs in two days with that kind of pressure, too? Because it's not like... I mean, it's fucking Slayer. So it's immersion for me. You know, it's it's like, okay, uh, Hate Worldwide I hadn't heard before. You know, Repentless I hadn't heard before. So it's listening over and over and over again, okay? And, and as soon as Kerry texted me, he's all, do you think you can do this? I'm all, send me the set list right now. <laughs> you know, I need every minute. So he sent it and I picked out the songs that I didn't, you know, know the structure to. And, and so I just listen over and over, listen to intro, first verse, start it over intro, first verse again, you know, intro, first verse, you know, first chorus. And just, and you just build on that and try to anticipate, you know, where the next piece is. Oh, you fucked up, start it again. You know, I must've listened to those songs hundreds of times, you know, just trying to pick up on that. Okay. And now try to learn the song and try to play it. Cause I, when I got there, my guitars didn't show up. Oh, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So you uh, haven't yes. played the songs before you got there? No, no, I didn't have time. <laughs> there was no time to, you know, between that I had an early flight. So I, I, I send the guitars. There's three different tunings. The guitars don't show up. There's one song, Payback, is in Drop B. And uh, I asked Carrie when I get, oh, fuck, the guitars aren't here. Does anybody have a guitar? I'm hitting up Scott Ian, you know, Johnny Rock and Roll from Anthrax. Anybody got Lamb of God guys? Anybody got a guitar? No, they're all on the truck. I'm all, fuck, Carrie. It's got one guitar, and it's the Payback guitar. It's the Drop B. It's the only song in that tuning. So I am transposing in the hotel th that whole night. I'm watching through YouTube, and I'm like transposing 
certain parts and learning them in a different key, you know, cause this is in half step down. And so I'm like, okay, here's where the fingering is, but I can't play along. You know, it's just a nightmare. It's a fucking nightmare trying to figure this shit out. That is, sounds really, really stressful. Yeah. That, that's <laughs> craziness. 19 songs. Didn't play them before you left uh-uh. and you didn't have a guitar in the hotel room. I got to ask, how did the first show go? Uh, well, I had a couple of days. I did have a couple of days. So, cause uh, Gary decided to stay another day. There was a big show in Berlin he wanted to be there for. That's still a very compressed timeline. Yeah. So I am, I'm going over them and while they play and I'm in the jam room kind of going over stuff. So I'm able to hit up Carrie and, and, uh, he was off, you know, he's available. He's all, you need anything, let me know. And Gary was the same way. You need anything. And it became a proud, a kind of a pride thing at that point. It's like, fuck, I think I got this, you know, I think I got it. And, uh, so I asked Gary a couple of things, uh, carry a couple of things. And, uh, before the first show, uh, we sound check and we play two songs. So I sound checked, I rehearsed with them two songs before the first show. <laughs> two out of 19, only 17 to go. And it was, uh, I wanted to play Repentless because it's the first song. And so I wanted to like simulate that, that the first song and get up there and get the first one out of the way. And it went fucking great. And then I wanted to play Chemical Warfare because it was the hardest song for me because there's so many changes and just super fast. And so uh, the first show, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting in stage right world with Tom, kind of losing my shit a little bit, you know, pretty confident that I, that I got it. I'm trying to remember kind of the, the pyro cues because of the pyro is insane. And so I'm thinking I'm a holy fuck. I'm all, I don't know when I'm supposed to walk up there. That's the one thing that I don't know. It's like, when do I walk on stage for the intro? How do we, and I look at Tom, I'm like, when I go up, he's all dead face. He's all dude, you're supposed to be up there right now. And I'm like, oh <laughs> fuck. So I go to run up there. He grabs me by the shoulder. He's all, I'm just fucking with you, man. <laughs> <laughs> So I was like, welcome, welcome to Slayer, man. <laughs> did oh, did man. you have tabs or did you do it all by ear? Well, I mean, you had to transpose by ear, but like what? I went to, and I read some tabs on some songs. I read, I went and saw some lessons on some things. Shit that couldn't have been done in 1985. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you so used, used the modern tools. I was super fortunate that I had good Wi-Fi in the hotel and I was able to. In Europe, you had good Wi-Fi in a hotel in Europe. Hey, Imagine. less of that. Less of that. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sure you didn't stay <laughs> in any of the hotels that Slayer were staying in. Probably not. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Tour. Yeah. Fair so, enough. You know, the, the combinations were top notch for sure. But I did, I did, I did the tabs. I did the YouTube. I did every sort of, re, uh, you know, watching, you know, videos of like the recent tours that Gary was doing just to watch. I wanted to, you know, kind of mirror what they were doing with stage choreography and like, you know, what, where, when Carrie comes over to the side or what, you know, everything looked like and lighting cues and so I took it fucking seriously, like anybody would. I mean, if you got that call, you would do the same thing. You know, you would, people are like, how'd you fucking do it, man? It's like, dude, if you got that call. You just do it. You would do it. You would fucking make it happen. Speaking of Kevin Talley, man. So one thing that if people don't know what he was really good at besides playing drums is learning people's sets immediately. Like he would get calls. Like I remember one day Devil Driver called him at like, 11 a.m., John Berkland, their drummer, got food poisoning. And he was like, 
I need you at the show tonight in a different city. So at 1 p.m., Kevin was on a flight and he had never played these songs before. So he just listened to them. And by 6 p.m., he was there. Nailed it. Didn't sound check. And just played the show. And uh, <laughs> I mean, also, yeah, he, he did the same kind of shit with Black Dahlia. Like, that's as crazy as that motherfucker is. Like, he has this ability to just, I don't know. Just retain. Listen, just yeah. Re- yeah, but then, not just retain, but then do it. Kind of like when, uh, I remember once, I only remember this because Mike Ackerfeld recorded at my home studio this day. It was during Sounds of the Underground 2005. I went and I picked. I saw Hoagland do it. Okay, so you were there? I saw Hoagland do it in LA and in San Francisco, yeah. That is insane, doing an Opeth set. Dude, the day of. So the day of, Michael was at my house, and we had to record something for Roadrunner United. Uh, James Murphy was producing it. I was just helping him out. And uh, Michael spent most of the time talking to the label about what the fuck they're going to do about the drummer situation. And then he went back and I watched a show and Gene played the whole show with no rehearsal. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa. Insane. Guys, yeah. Something else. Crazy. And when it's a drummer, I always find that it's like, because they are like the foundation of the band. I think there's actually a significant amount more pressure put onto them because if they fuck up, Everybody hears it. <laughs> Dave McLean's mom passed away on tour and we were opening for Hell Yeah at the time. So he had left and we asked people in the other, on the, uh, it was the dude from Barrier Dead at the time. Mark? Yeah. Mark Castillo. That guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just say, let me interrupt you for one second. I That is the only drummer I've ever recorded that literally broke cymbal stands in half. <laughs> from, like I've, I've recorded drummers that have broken cymbals, but he, that cymbal motherfucker stands. hit so hard that the stand <laughs> snapped in half. Yeah, so he played, he played a couple songs. Uh, Rob from Nonpoint played a couple songs and then Vinny Paul came up and played Halo with us and Vinny's sheet was like two feet long of like because it's a 10 minute song it's a hard song to play but you know it took three drummers to fill in and do that set so I can't imagine being a drummer remembering something like let alone a fucking Opeth set that's just insane so speaking of like the stage part of it this kind of interesting because we spoke to i don't know if you know him a guitar player named andy james who's really really sick uh we talked to him a few days ago and he got the five finger death punch gig oh wow very very quickly and had had to learn that filling in for europe yeah and he did their european tour and we had kind of he talked about the exact same stuff which is like it wasn't just learning the songs which is enough of a challenge it was like pyro when uh, when to cross the stage, when not to cross the stage, all that stuff. Not knowing the counting. <laughs> yeah, the countings. Yeah, that's important too. He started like four bars early or something <laughs> on the first kick. Yeah. Oh, no. In your opinion, how important is that stuff, that kind of, that aspect of being in a band, like that whole, the visual side of the show, how... Like, where do you rate that compared to, like, the music side? I think that's super important. That's the connection, especially for a metal band, is... 
I don't know, watching a, a boring metal band takes it away from me. You know, I think that it's really important to connect with the fans and have a visual show and have, you know, that's what I prefer. I prefer watching a, an interactive band that, you know, that's reciprocate and, and being in a band, you know, that's where I reciprocate all the energy. That's where I get my energy from. If the crowd is dead, then it's, you know, you can say, that, you can say that you, you know, ah, I do the same thing every night. Bullshit. No, you definitely <laughs> thrive off that of, energy. Definitely. If you're playing in front of somebody sitting down, you know, it's not the same as somebody, you know, losing their shit in front of you. Which is the same for somebody going to a show. Yeah. I think it's like a feedback loop. Yeah. The more intense the crowd is, the more whatever it is, that more adrenaline or happy dopamine or whatever the fuck it is that you get. It's energy reciprocation, you know? It's You're throwing it back and forth. John, like, how does that work for you playing the fucking most technical music <laughs> that... Yeah. So you guys play some seriously difficult shit, but you guys, you guys throw it down. Is it a uh, shoe, shoe, shoes in the dryer? Uh, yeah, no. definitely. Falling down the stairs. <laughs> shoes in the dryer to me implies that someone can't play double kick. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's tons of patterns. I think it's like, uh, well, generally, I mean, regardless of what band you're in, there's going to be parts where you have to concentrate just that little bit more. Oh yeah. And it's all then at that point, it's just about looking as sick as you can up on the monitor, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there are challenges, obviously, because there's certain bits where I kind of want to go and I can't because I've got to play it. You know, right, it's right. like, it's, yeah, it's kind of sure. like, it's finding that middle ground where you can fuck up enough where it's, you can still be entertaining, I guess, is the... <laughs> Yeah. The kind of middle. <laughs> it's like what we were talking about earlier, where you said you'd picked up all these bad habits, and then right, you had right, to. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like getting to the point of bad habits where it's not fucking anything else up. <laughs> That's the only way, really, because uh, yeah, some of it's just. I mean, the moment that you add more than six strings to the equation, that's already hurting the brain well, a lot more you know i so, never do uh, that so yeah yeah you, so you're smart you see <laughs> <laughs> okay so speaking of learning songs quickly for a high pressure situation how similar was it when the machine head thing came up was that an easier learning process i had more time i, I want to say I maybe had i had a, a month to do that and some of them i had known already being a fan of the band huge i was a huge fan of the band before Kind of similar, but I just had more time. So, and there was a lot of rehearsal. So I was able to kind of go over stuff. And there, yeah, there was, it was microscopic rehearsal, tones, effects, pedals, and stuff like that. So in Slayer, there was, there was, there was no effects and there was no, it was just straight through Gary's awesome Marshall Jubilee, you know, six cabinets going, three heads going, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All live cat is so fucking loud. Oh uh, yeah, I saw a picture of that the other day actually. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was the yeah. one that he put up. That was the rig I played out of. And uh so just a wah if I needed to, or I had a delay on certain parts, the seasons, you know, season solo and some parts in that. Yeah. Pretty similar in that sense. We have a couple questions from the audience. Do you mind if we ask those real quick? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So uh from Nick. Burby says, how do you get started writing new ideas? Do you just jam and listen, or do you think of an idea first or maybe something else entirely? I have 
on my voice memos and I'll see if I could pull one up. So I'll just, I'll just have, and sometimes I, I want to find one that I do with my mouth for my voice. <laughs> Damn it. So sometimes you go, bow, chow, 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 bow, bow, right? you know, whatever. And, and you just go and you, while I'm driving, I just put it down that way. Uh, I gotta, I gotta say that I don't have to say, but a lot of my ideas come as soon as I strap on the guitar. You know, it's, it's usually you put it on and you've got your tone up and it's like so many ideas just go, fuck, I got to record that, you know, right. It, it's just the fresh, you know, clean slate just coming in and, you know, before you get tainted by any attitudes that's in the room or anything else that's going on, it's that first, that first thing, or sometimes melodies, finding a couple notes that hit together where you go, oh, those are, those are kind of cool in this sense. And just kind of, kind of going from that. Awesome. Right. I've got a question from Bastian Bove. Um, what's your next goal as a musician and what drives you to continue after all those years and such a big career? Man, you know, it's Machine Head wasn't my band. Violence is a band that I helped start, but we are, you know, I don't want to say it's my band, but it's a band that I'm the chief music writer or whatever. So I think my goal right now is to make the best possible violence record that I can. And, uh, I want it to be perfect. I want it to be, you know, how dime felt about vulgar, you know, just, I want it to be perfect. So I think that that's, that's my focus right now. Amazing. All right. I've got one and this will be the last one from radar Tuv Brati, which I'm sure I mispronounced. Hey, Phil, what are your thoughts on using an Axe Effects, Kemper, Helix, et cetera, a digital modeler for live shows? Do you prefer to use a real amp or amp modelers and why? I like real amps. You know, I've got my Axe Effects and my Kemper right here that I used to record because it's super easy and, you know. <laughs> but for live, I love the cleans that you can get. Uh, and you certainly can't, you know, there's, it's, I love the cleans that those, that those modelers and those units use, but I, I love pushing air and I love the amp and feeling that power behind you and just the way that it responds, the natural feedbacks and that I'm into amps. <laughs> In your home studio, do you use modelers or using amps? I got the Kemper and the Axe effects there, but then I've got a couple guys back oh, there. Yeah. I've got the- Is that a block letter? Fuck yeah, block letter. That's the shit. Yeah. So I got that fella and uh really digging the the EVH, the fifty one fifty three. There's they make an EL thirty four that's awesome. The PV sixty five thirty fours are crushing. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love that amp. So I'm all over the place. I'm I love gear. Like, <laughs> I like that. I, I feel like it's good to be open to whatever tool gets the job done, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The PV Invective, the 120, the Misha amps are pretty awesome. They've got built-in gates and they've got two effects uh, loops available too. So if you haven't checked out the Invective 120s, those are killer. Awesome. Dude, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on. It's good to see you again, man. It's been a long time. Right on, dude. It's been awesome chatting with you. Phil's cool. Yeah, he's a lovely guy, isn't he? But if you're in the Bay Area, Berkeley or Oakland, make sure you lock your fucking car. <laughs> <laughs> For real. Man, it must be quite a thing to be a part of a scene like that. Like, I always think about those kinds of scenes like Seattle in the 90s or Sweden or Montreal for, like, technical metal or 
Just think about being in that Bay Area scene with so many future titans being a part of it. And it wasn't just thrash metal either. Like, it was, no. you know, it was all the other styles were like Primus, Dead Kennedys. and I didn't even know about Primus being from there. No, I didn't either. It was pretty amazing stories to hear. I mean, that would have been, just imagine five days a week at shows. How would you remember everything? I would have been drunk. <laughs> yeah, there's that. But I bet you that that's also part of why the bands got good was a lot of competition. Yeah, and, you know, healthy competition. Well, obviously, we see that a lot of them are still friends. Yes. So it wasn't an unhealthy competition. It was like, it was almost like they were all helping each other out as well at the same time. Yeah, that's actually something I've noticed. Like, for instance, in Atlanta, where I'm from, the scene's not like that. Bands really tear each other down, which is why uh, my band didn't really play locally until we got signed and we came back on tour. And even like there was another band who accused us of like stealing their record deal and stuff. And there's a lot of that kind of fighting. And uh, interestingly enough, there's an Atlanta musicians group on Facebook, like old school musicians who uh, I just got added to. And it's like, so all these people from the local bands from like the nineties and early two thousands that I avoided, I was just in there. Cause why not? I'm an old school Atlanta musician too. And they were, acting exactly the same like okay so have you heard of that band collective soul yeah the name rings a bell yeah okay they had like 19 number one or top 10 hits they were like a 90s band but they went on for a long time but they're one of those bands that a lot of people don't realize how big they were anyways they're from atlanta and uh the singer happens to live right near me and super nice dude and beautiful house with a beautiful studio and everything but man the people in that group were still jealous 20 years later still jealous that this dude got that record deal and still talking shit and it's like can you imagine holding on to that hate for that long because someone else became successful is everyone in atlanta a taurus <laughs> I have no idea. I'm a Gemini, but I'm just illustrating that that's why there was never a real scene here is because of shit like that. It sounds to me like in the Bay Area kind of scene, uh, like he said, like in violence, they wanted what other bands had, but still it sounds like a healthy competition, like you said, and more camaraderie. And that that is crucial for a scene getting off the ground. You can't have those petty, shitty, stupid battles. Yeah, and, and you see it. I mean, like, he filled in for Slayer, Gary Holt um, as well. Yeah, and an Gary Holt just played for Death Angel yeah, recently. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they all go on tour together still. Like the, In fact, we were on tour earlier this year, just before uh, COVID hit, actually. We got back on March 6th. And one of the shows, we were in Vienna, and um, Testament, Exodus, and Death Angel played the venue opposite us. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's like, what, 30 years ago? They're still touring together. Obviously don't hate each other, probably in competition, but they just decided that the competition should be that we help each other out rather than just constantly being bow with each other. Yeah, the the amount of career bands to come out of that area is crazy. Yeah, crazy. Like, they're still, I mean, they're still this big Yeah. to this day. Yeah, I mean, that show, there was at least 1,200 people. My point exactly. It's it's a really impressive thing. I mean, it's hard enough to have one record get out there and have some success or even three, but 
to do it for multiple decades and then have multiple bands do it for multiple decades. That's craziness. And constantly swap between each other to help each other out. Pretty yep. amazing. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, something interesting he was talking about that I can relate to is the old way of learning. I feel like if if we had YouTube and stuff or Riff Hard back in the day, I feel like I would have gotten a lot better, a lot faster. It wasn't like I didn't start getting much better, like I said, until this newer technology came around. I mean, I, I got pretty good just based on working hard, but there was a level that, that I got to once I could record myself and learn from the internet. Exactly. I think that, I mean, even in this day and age, a lot of guitar players still don't play to a metronome, which is just insane really? to me. Yeah. Yeah. There's still quite a few guitar players that have never played to a metronome. And, uh, when you've got it there in front of you, I mean, you can download Reaper if you're not making any money off of it. So you've got a DAW there that you can use with a metronome in it and you can practice to that every single day. You can record yourself every single day. And that's the only real way to really gauge on if you're making progress. Cause you're not really listening when you're playing because you're concentrating on actually playing. So you need to take a step back and listen from a different point of view. And when it comes to riff hard, you know, we tell people to record themselves, video themselves every minute that they can possibly do it. And the reason for that is, is that you need to actually witness what you're playing. We take the exercises that we have on the site as well and really get them to record those down so they can see, am I playing tight to the beat? Am I you know, jumping ahead, am I pushing it instead of being in the pocket, you know, and all these exercises are focused on making you the best you possibly can be. So the use of technology is phenomenal really, isn't it? Because then we, we would never have been able to do this 30 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just do it, record it in your bedroom for yourself to listen to. Uh, we have an entire community of guitar players that are constantly doing this and helping each other out and critiquing each other. And that's another thing that we were missing back in the day. I knew like one other guitar player in town who was trying to get really good like me at my age. Like I didn't have an ability to connect with guitar players from all over the world who were going through the same thing. And that's something that is definitely there in the riff hard community. And I think that it really does help them get better. Not only that, we also incentivize them with, uh, with prizes too. Exactly. Yeah. I think that the community at riff hard is very similar to the scene that we were just talking about with the thrash metal. It's like, yes, it's just all part of a family and you're all there doing the same thing. You're trying to get better at the instrument and become in, in a relevant position in the 21st century. And you need to do all of these learning things to be able to do that now. And being around people that also want to do the same thing, it's that healthy competition that we're talking about, just, you know. Yeah, what's interesting is that the idea of a scene, and especially now in COVID times, but the idea of a scene, I think, is it's not that it's a dated idea. I just think that it's shifted. The same way that the way that people consume music has shifted, scenes for the most part have moved from being physically in one place. And that's, you know, because of the limitations of older eras where they only could be in one place. They've shifted from that to being online within communities. It really, really helps to be a part of something like that because 
man, if you're just doing stuff in isolation, unless you're a freak, it's going to be really, really hard to know where you stand. Yeah. You know, there's no, you've not got any gauge to see where you are. I mean, you've got obviously got the pro players, but as far as, you know, regular people like, you know, yourself, you've got no guidance. You've got no gauge of where you are actually at when it comes to playing. I mean, obviously aiming for the stars, you know, these people that you idolize is always a good thing, but also knowing that you're focusing on the right things is really, really important. And that's where, you know, Riffard comes in. We make sure that you're focusing on the right path. Yeah. So I, I totally agree. When you're focusing on the outliers and the the superstar players, that's cool as a goal. I encourage everybody to have goals like that because if you don't have goals like that, it's hard to get to that place. But You need milestones along the way, basically. Yeah. You need milestones along the way, and it's it's almost not a good idea always to use like the ability of someone like on Jason Richardson's level to gauge the things you need to do now. Where his brain is at is not where an intermediate or even an advanced player is, and definitely not <laughs> where a beginner is. That that's he's like in the point oh one percent of guitar players. So where anything that comes from him is going to be from the perspective of someone at a point oh one percent. And again, yes, you should aspire to be that and get whatever wisdom you can, but to learn from people who are maybe a little bit further on the path than you and to learn how to overcome these challenges now in the moment, that's what really makes a difference. I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, for sure. Just learning from your peers, basically. Yep. Well, all right, man. It's been a killer episode. I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun as well. <laughs> yeah. See you next week, man. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.